God's word together. So Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 22, because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand? Deuteronomy 18, I'll begin reading in verse 9. Moses writes as he's carried along by the Spirit of God, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Church family, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Some people have a keen sense of direction. Others are directionally challenged. I am one of those directionally challenged folks. If you've ever ridden with me on a trip, perhaps you've learned this. Uh, if you haven't yet, and you will ride with me eventually, perhaps you will learn this. I pass turns. I mean, I daydream as I travel. I'm one of those that sees traveling as an opportunity to think. And so I think, but not about where I'm going. And I can't tell you the number of times, even just right here in Powell. I'm, I'm talking about places now with which I'm familiar. I feel quite at home here in Powell, Tennessee. I know where things are. And yet I consistently pass turns, wake up and find myself, I don't know, out in high school or something, wondering how I got there. That's a bit drastic, perhaps, but not much. 
In fact, my ability to pass a turn has been such a characteristic in my life that Tana, my beloved bride, has learned to caution me when a turn is approaching. And and that always goes well. (laughs) I do love you, sweetheart. Just the other day, I mean, this happens all the time. Just the other day, I was approaching a turn and... And, um, and she said, you know, you're going to be turning here. I didn't say this, but I thought, I know, of course I know that. You know, who do you think I am? And then it did occur to me, well, you know, there are the 5,000 other times <laughs> when you didn't know where you were going. So she's learned to gently, graciously say, sweetheart, you're turning right up here. Just the other day, I'll give you another example. Just the other day, I won't get into specifics here, but... I dropped my mom off at the airport. She was in visiting for a week, and so that was a privilege and a joy, and so we dropped off at the airport. And I made my way to a particular part of Knoxville where I would be attending a brief service. And I I ended up right on time in a completely different part of Knoxville. (laughs) I pulled up, and there's no one there, and I thought, well, where is everybody? It's time to start here in a couple of moments. Now, thank the Lord I wasn't leading the service, okay? I should say that. Um, And then I got on the phone and found out, oh yeah, by the way, that's about 15 minutes away from where you are. So this is is just my life, okay? Wandering about aimlessly. I'm directionally challenged. (laughs) Pastor Tim is enjoying this far too much. (laughs) He has ridden with me. And he works alongside me. While it is one thing, I thought about this this week, it's one thing, isn't it, to live a directionally challenged life as it relates to geography. It's frustrating. It's not, you know, the worst thing in the world. It's something else altogether to live a directionally challenged life as it relates to spiritual and moral direction. To have, let's say it this way, a a broken moral compass. A broken theological compass a broken spiritual compass to have no idea where you should go because you don't know what God has said clearly in his word. There are some who wander through life apparently directionless regarding God's will for their lives. And this is, of course, why there are so many books out there you can purchase about God's will and how to discover God's will. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 22, God provides clear direction for us, for God's people, regarding how to know and respond to his will. In fact, one could argue that that's what this text is about, knowing the will of God and responding well to the will of God. You don't have to walk about aimlessly, as it were, with regard to ethics or theology and life direction. God has spoken plainly. And so that's what this text is about for us. We could really boil it down to a question, and sometimes this is helpful at the beginning of a sermon to boil down the subject to a question and then pose that we're going to actually seek to answer the question. Well, here's the question. How should you know and respond to the will of God for your life? Because it is, after all, inadequate to know God's will without doing God's will. As Pastor Adam prayed just a moment ago, that we wouldn't simply be hearers of the word. We would also be what? Doers of God's word. 
And so how should you know and respond to the will of God for your life? And we're going to make our way through this text in two stages. Two stages this morning, if you're taking notes. First of all, we are going to look together at verses 9 through 14, where we find how not to know and respond to God's will. So Moses begins with a bad example. This is what you ought not do, how not to know and respond to God's will. And he does this by by describing the practices of the inhabitants of Canaan. Remember, Israel, the second generation of Israelites, standing on the plains of Moab, are about to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. And you have these inhabitants in Canaan, broadly referred to at times as the Canaanites. And so now in verses 9 through 14, we receive a description of how they seek to know and respond to the will of their false gods. So first, how not to do this. And then secondly, you could guess it, how to do it. How to know and respond faithfully to God's will. So first, how not to know and respond. And secondly, how to know and respond to God's will. Look with me, if you would, at verse 9, where we begin to see how not to know and respond to God's will. Moses writes, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Now, if you've been with us throughout our exposition of Deuteronomy, you know, perhaps, perhaps you will recall, that many times Moses has contrasted the practices of the Canaanites with the practices that ought to characterize God's people, the people of Israel. And there's even a word that consistently gets used in the Hebrew, toevah or toevot. And this word gets translated oftentimes in the English Standard Version, if you have the English Standard Version, the one that I read a moment ago, as abomination or abominations. And so Moses has warned the people of Israel, look, don't pattern your life after the abominations, the abominable practices of the inhabitants of Canaan. You are to be a distinct people, set apart for the glory of God who has rescued you. Your God is different than their gods. Your God is the one true and living God after all. And you ought to be different than they are. And so this resurfaces here in our text Israel is not to pattern their lives after these pagan nations. Well, in our text, we learn that there were certain ways that these nations sought to discover and and to know and to do the will of their gods. In verses 10 and 11, Moses enumerates some of these practices. Look down at the text with me. Moses writes in verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. We can't even imagine this, can we? It means what it says. And he's already said this back in chapter 12, verse 31. This apparently was a practice among the inhabitants of Canaan. So don't do this, he says. He continues, anyone who practices divination. No one is to practice divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Quite a list. Now, each of these practices really falls into one of two categories, and we're not going to walk through each of them specifically. In fact, just to be frank, it's difficult to know some of the nuances of each of these. And they're, they're related in so many ways. There's a great deal of overlap as you're working through this text. 
But I do think there are two broad categories under which we could place or deposit each of these practices. Some of these, the first category, is something like this. They are attempts to know God's will, or let's say it this way, attempts to know the will of the gods, plural for them. Attempts to know the will of the gods. Or we could say it this way, attempts to know the outcome of circumstances. These are attempts at discovering what indeed is going to happen. And this is where most of the practices focus. For example, telling fortunes, interpreting omens, consulting mediums, participating in necromancy. That is, that is the practice of having conversations or attempts at having conversations with those who are dead. These are all ways of attempting, don't miss this, attempting to hear and receive guidance from the ethereal realm, the spiritual realm, or from the gods. Ways of discovering, quite complicated, of course. And these are elaborate ways. You're going to see a stark contrast between these practices and the way God says, look, this is how I speak to my people. So that's one category, ways of attempting to know or discover the will of the gods or circumstances. But a second category is something like this. These are attempts to influence the will of the gods or to manipulate circumstances. And so these practices aren't simply attempts at knowing the will of the gods or knowing what will happen. These are attempts at manipulating or influencing what indeed would happen in one's favor. And these various occult practices that are mentioned here include things like sacrificing your child to a god or to the gods. Now, why would you do such a thing? Why would you sacrifice your child to the gods? You would do so to manipulate circumstances. You would do so to placate anger or wrath, to curb the desire or the will of these gods. Because you see, these gods were a lot like humans. Additionally, notice that Moses prohibits sorcerers at the end of verse 10 and charmers at the beginning of verse 11. Now, these activities, while difficult to identify with specificity, these, these, these activities actually had more to do with exercising power over the elements Attempting, as it were, to be God, to direct circumstances, to manipulate circumstances and manipulate other people and even manipulate gods, these deities, these gods that they claimed to worship. Now, perhaps a lot we could go into here. The likelihood, the likelihood of any of you being overtly involved in magic or sorcery or charming, etc., is is low, not non-existent. It's low. And notice I said overtly involved. We're going to talk about covert participation in these things. But overt participation in these things is probably lower among Americans and in particular among those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. However, I would be remiss if I did not warn you about the damning danger of such activities. In fact, 
Paul includes such activities even in his list in Galatians chapter five when he's contrasting the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh. He includes sorcery. This is actually the fruit of the flesh, the work of a flesh, work of the flesh rather. Any attempt, don't miss this, any attempt at knowing God's will or manipulating God's will by means of these occult practices is an act of defiance and unbelief. It dishonors God. On the other hand, I'm I'm perhaps more concerned as a follower of Jesus Christ and as a pastor in the 21st century here in Powell, Tennessee, I'm more concerned about the covert ways that we may fall prey to these activities or what motivates these activities. And I'm concerned about how we might fall prey to these activities in the name of Christ. Let me give you some examples. When our fundamental, when my fundamental disposition before God is less about obedience and more about getting what I want, I'm falling prey to these occult practices. This is, this is a wonderful opportunity to evaluate our prayer lives. Now, does this mean, of course, we don't bring requests to the Lord? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, we're, we're told time and time and time again to continue to bring our requests to the Lord. However, prayer is oftentimes less about getting our wills accomplished and more about bringing our wills into submission and conformity to the Father's will. Do you consider this? When I pray to my Father, how has Christ taught me to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By implication, and start with me. And so indeed, I bring my will to the Father in prayer, and I should, as any child who trusts his or her father does and trusts the benevolence, the infinite benevolence in this case of the father and the infinite power of the father. I bring my requests, I bring my will, but I lay them at his feet, trusting that indeed I've come not primarily to get what I want, I've come primarily to be conformed to the image of Christ and to have what I want altered. Because oftentimes what I want is not what I need. What I want is not good for me at all. And so I think this disposition of viewing prayer simply as as trying to get what we want is similar, at least it's motivated in a similar way to some of these magical practices that were condemned among the Canaanites. Additionally, I'm, I'm increasingly bothered by something that, that I've, I've seen, I've heard even in my own mouth, for it to come out of my mouth. And as I evaluate these things, I'm increasingly bothered by what appears to be the use of the name of the Lord or Jesus as a magical incantation. What do I mean by that? Our, our broader evangelical culture is obsessed with the, quote, power in the name of Jesus. And when I hear that, when I hear that there is power in the name of Jesus, I I do, I ask the question, what is meant by the statement? 
Because the name of Jesus in scripture is a way of referring to the person of Jesus. The name of the Lord is a, is, is a way of talking about God himself. And so if what is intended by there is power in the name of Jesus, that there is power in Jesus himself, amen to that. That there's infinite power in Christ, there's infinite power in the work of Christ, and that power has come to us by means of the spirit of God, amen, amen, and amen. But if what is intended, if what is intended by there is power in the name of Jesus is that we can now begin to wield the name of Jesus, namely the words themselves, the syllables themselves, as a kind of magical incantation through which we exercise authority over the elements, that's magic. That's not Christian. You see the difference? It's subtle, but it's important. I'm tempted to talk about what it means to pray in Jesus' name. But to pray in the name of Jesus is, and I'm getting ahead of myself because one of my desires is to do a series on prayer during our monthly Sunday evening services coming up, starting next, Lord, next, uh, next month, rather. So perhaps I'll do a, a, a mini-sermon. Any sermon on this, but to pray in the name of Jesus. And we'll use it as a formula. I do, right? In Jesus' name we pray. That's fine, as long as we aren't viewing it as a kind of magical attachment through which God's, God's will is bound, as it were, to my will. But instead, as a way of praying on account of the person and the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. To pray in the name of Christ is to pray knowing that I'm able to do so as a son, having been adopted by virtue of the righteousness of Jesus. That's what it means. So, but that's a topic for another day. I think if we're not cautious, we can fall prey to some of the same motivations that we find in these practices among the inhabitants of Canaan. That is, attempting to know God's will in, in a way that he hasn't given us the avenue of knowing his will and attempting to manipulate, alter, change his will or our circumstances and bring them into conformity to our own wills as opposed to laying our wills before him. And in the words of the Lord Jesus himself, praying not my will, but your will be done because your will is good and I can trust your will. I cannot trust my own. Moreover, notice the starting language of verse 12. Verse 12, we'll just mention this, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now notice, notice that when you do abominations, you become an abomination. <laughs> Greg Beale Pastor Tim knows what's going on right now in my, in my mind because we had a conversation earlier about this. And I said, I'm going to try not to chase this rabbit. So there's a war raging within me. <clears throat> Greg Beale has, has written a book. Uh, I believe it's called Something Like You Are What You Worship. I think that's the name of the book. But Greg Beale writes these words, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. And this works both ways. When we commit ourselves time and time again to abominations, we actually become abominations 
in the eyes of the Lord. But isn't it glorious that, that the good news of the gospel is as we're energized by the Spirit of God and we are obeying the Lord, we are actually being conformed into the image of Christ so that when he comes, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. That's all I'm gonna say about that and we're gonna keep going. So as Christians, we're not to adopt pagan practices of knowing or influencing through magic or sorcery, even in the, quote, name of Christ. These are not valid ways of knowing and responding to God's will. Let's turn our attention now to verses 15 to 22, where we now find how to know and respond to God's will. How to know and respond to God's will. Look with me at verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, that is like Moses, from your brothers. Notice, it is to him you shall listen. So the inhabitants of Canaan listen to fortune tellers and diviners and all sorts of things, but you shall listen to God's prophet. There is a refreshing simplicity to the way God communicates with his people, isn't there? This isn't challenging. It isn't difficult. You don't have to go in search of the will of God. God is saying, look, I'm going to raise up for you a prophet, and it's this simple. Listen to him. Oh, God, how do we know your will? Listen to the prophet. How do we know what what you want us to do? Listen to the prophet. You don't have to do all these other activities in order to discover what I want for your life. No, just listen to my words given to you by means of my prophet. Isn't that tremendous? That had to be refreshing for God's people as they're entering Canaan. Rather than knowing and responding to the will of God, in various other ways has already been described by Moses in verses 9 through 14. Israel was simply to trust and obey God's prophet. And Moses goes on to recount the role of a prophet, that is the role of the function of the prophet, grew out of Israel's request given to the Lord through Moses. You may recall this, perhaps not. I'll just summarize it for you. In Exodus chapter 19, In Exodus chapter 20, God descends on Mount Sinai on Horeb, as Moses will refer to it here in the book of Deuteronomy. And on Mount Sinai, as God thunders his commandments, right? This is a frightening situation. Israel makes a request, and the request goes something like this. Please, please, God speak anymore. Well, why? Because this was terrifying, And so Israel requests that Moses be a kind of go-between between between Israel and the Lord. And and Israel comes to Moses and says, would you just go into the presence of the Lord? The Lord can speak to you, and then you just deliver the message to us. That's fine with us. And so Moses recounts all of this, even right here in our text. He's already done it once back in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And what God does is he graciously uses Moses to serve in this prophetic capacity. This is the role and function of God's prophet. And the text actually helps us understand the function 
more so as we unpack this together. Look down with me at verses 18 and 19. What is the role of a prophet? What does it look like for a prophet to function as a prophet? Here's what Moses writes. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Notice I will put my what? Words where? In his mouth. And he shall speak to them how much? All that I command him. Verse 19, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So a prophet, a prophet was a man or by the way, or a woman. So Miriam was a prophetess. Deborah was a prophetess. If we think in terms of the succession of prophets, a man or a woman who spoke God's words to God's people. It's that simple. That was the function of a prophet. They spoke the word of God to the people of God. They were God's mouthpiece. And this included, by the way, predictive prophecy, predicting the future, sometimes referred to as foretelling what would happen. But this was only a a percentage of what the prophet would actually speak. This also included instruction for God's people or forthtelling. So predicting the future was a part of it, but more so it was just instruction from the Lord through the prophet for God's people. And notice that God promises, as I mentioned a moment ago, to put his words into the prophet's mouth. This means that when the prophet spoke, God spoke. When the prophet spoke, God spoke. He was not to speak more. He was not to speak less than what God had given him to speak. And as a result, disregarding or disobeying God's instruction, rather I should say it this way, the prophet's instruction was tantamount to disobeying and disregarding God's instruction, you see? For anyone to disregard the words of the prophet of the Lord was for them to disregard the words of God himself. And that's the point of this text, in large part. Moses then answers a question for us. And this is a question that I would have, of course, if I were standing there on the plains of Moab and Moses said something like this to me and he said, look, God's gonna raise up a prophet for you and you've gotta listen to every word he says. You've gotta follow him. And if you don't follow him, you're not following the Lord. And God will require it of you. That is, he will judge you for disobeying him. And then the question comes to my mind, well, how in the world will I know if it's God's prophet? And that's the question Moses goes on to answer for us in verses 20 to 22. Now, on the one hand, the prophet who spoke in the name of other gods, whether his prophetic word came true or not, was to be rejected. And we saw this back in Deuteronomy 13. If anyone comes to you in the name of other gods, I don't care how many signs he gives. I don't care how many wonders he gives. I don't care how many miracles he performs. God says, do not listen to him or to her. The Lord is allowing this to test you. But that's not Moses' primary concern here. That's clear enough. On the other hand, God's primary concern and Moses' primary concern is with the prophet who claims to speak in the name of the Lord. That is, what do I do about the person who shows up and claims to be God's prophet? 
claims to be speaking in the name of Yahweh, the name of the God who is. How can I tell? And the standard, the standard is clear. When God's prophet speaks as God's prophet, the message is infallible. That's the standard. There won't be an error in it. Why? Because the infallible God is speaking. Now don't miss that. When God's prophet speaks as God's prophet, the message would be infallible because it came from and was sourced in the infallible God. Look at verse 22 with me quickly. We'll read that. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, notice that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. That is to say, you need not obey him, disregard him. In fact, if we went back up to verse 20, what do you do with him? You stone him. By the way, this is the way it worked. A false prophet was to be a dead prophet. To use the language of James, false faith is dead faith. Right? Faith without works is dead. A false prophet is dead prophet. And that's the case here in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so this did a couple of things. It warned everyone from saying, thus saith the Lord. This is perhaps why you see a struggle in the prophets themselves. I can't imagine the Lord calling me to be a prophet because I miss one time. And I'm what? I'm dead. I mean, I can preach sermon after sermon after sermon, and you know, there are things about which we can agree and disagree and so forth. But you'll be hard-pressed to hear me say, thus saith the Lord, unless immediately after that phrase, I'm reading scripture. Not because I have this preconceived idea, I don't think, that limits God. Rather, because I have a high view of the word of God. Because I've come to know the God who doesn't speak error. I've come to know the God we can trust, no matter what. I've come to know the veracity and the truthfulness of his word. Boy, that gets us off a bit. This is not to say God doesn't impress and guide and so forth, but as soon as the prophet said, or the so-called prophet said, thus saith the Lord, he had better be right. Now, did you notice that the word prophet is in the singular? Look at verse 15. The Lord will raise up for you prophets 
Interesting, isn't it? It's not plural. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own brother, as it is to him you shall listen. Now, it's, it's possible, it's possible, and I've, I've perhaps even shown this throughout the sermon, it's possible, I think likely, that this does refer in some ways to the succession of prophets. You could call this a collective singular, right? So to refer to a prophet was in some way to refer to all the prophets, the succession of prophets. And I think that's true to a point. However, Deuteronomy teaches us how to interpret this verse. And we're not going to turn there because, you know, eventually we'll preach on that text too. But Deuteronomy chapter 34, it concludes with this anticipation still of the coming prophet like Moses. In fact, it concludes with that anticipation after, after Joshua is already in sight. And so Joshua, the next prophet of the Lord, the next leader of the people of Israel is already in sight. He's already being talked about in Deuteronomy 34. And Deuteronomy still concludes, as it were, telling us, by the way, the prophet singular, like Moses, that God promised to send you back in Deuteronomy 18, that prophet is not Joshua. Consider a couple of passages with me, okay? This, this is good news. John 5, 45 and 46. You don't have to turn there. Just jot it down if you like. John 5, 45 and 46, Jesus says to the Jews who did not believe in him, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. And then he goes on to say, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. I never grow weary of learning how to read the Old Testament Christianly. As you work your way through the Old Testament, you finish Deuteronomy. And you enter Joshua, and Joshua's a tremendous leader, and Israel's doing well under Joshua's leadership, but they don't really inherit all of it, although there are these statements in the book of Joshua that indicate that God indeed granted the fulfillment of his promises, and yet not the complete and final fulfillment of those promises. And then you move from Joshua to Judges, and then everything falls apart. Everything. And then time and time again, God sends this, quote, savior or judge who helps and makes things worse. And this happens over and over and over again. And then eventually, the king, the king is going to be the one who rescues us, right? And so God installs a king in Saul. And Saul fails. Fails to honor the Lord, fails to obey the Lord, fails to lead the people of God. And this Saul gives way to David. And David is the king par excellence in the Old Testament. And yet... David finally commits adultery and murder and shows himself to be a sinner just like the rest of us. And on and on the story goes and you get to the conclusion of the Old Testament and you ask the question, where is this promised prophet? And then the New Testament begins telling the story of the birth of the prophet, Jesus Christ, 
the one whom God has finally sent, who would only ever speak the words of the Father. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's a prophet. Christ becomes the prophet, the fulfillment of this promise and all the promises concerning the prophets. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, I said a couple of passages. I'll mention this one too. Hebrews one, one and two says this long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, plural. Verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So this prophet's a little different than other prophets. This prophet actually created the world because this prophet is God incarnate. So the promise that God would someday raise up a prophet like Moses who would only speak God's words to God's people has been finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Luke does this in Acts chapter three and Acts chapter seven. He actually quotes Deuteronomy 18 in application to Jesus. So this is even explicit in the New Testament. Moreover, Jesus is far superior to Moses as we've already indicated through him being the creator. But think about this. Moses, Moses could speak God's instructions, but he could never fulfill them. Where does Moses die? Outside of the land. And this is a faithful man. A man I look forward to meeting someday but a man who could not fulfill the instructions he spoke as God's prophet. But what does Jesus Christ do? Jesus, of course, doesn't simply speak God's instructions. Jesus fulfills God's instructions for us. That is to say what God demands, he provides in Jesus Christ. So he demands purity, he provides purity in Christ. He demands integrity, He provides integrity in Christ, perfect integrity. He demands humility from us. He provides humility in Christ Jesus. He demands truthfulness. He provides truthfulness, so on and so forth. He demands love. He provides love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so Christ obeys the Father perfectly for us, not simply speaking the Father's words, but actually living the Father's words. And then he pays the penalty for all of us who've disobeyed. And he pays that penalty on the cross, dying in our place and for our sins. He's buried and he's raised in glorious power from the dead on the third day. Receiving all authority in heaven and on earth. And now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and prays for us and we are waiting eagerly for his return. The return of the prophet God has sent for us. Have you trusted in Christ? Do you know Christ Jesus? That's the question for you this morning. How are you responding to God's prophet? Because the reality is this, as Deuteronomy 18 says, if you disobey God's prophet, God will require it of you. That is to say, you will be judged on that last day according to 
the way in which you responded to Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered to Christ? Have you embraced Christ? Do you treasure Jesus Christ? Not because there's anything good, inherently good in you, but because you found all that you need in Jesus Christ. I had a conversation with someone just this past week, and what a joy it was to have this conversation. Because this particular person was someone I love dearly. And I was sharing the gospel with this person. Isn't it a privilege to share the gospel? By which we are being saved. And, and this person responded with something like this. They said, I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can. And I said, you've misunderstood me because your best isn't enough. I said, it begins here. It begins with recognizing your moral, spiritual bankruptcy. That's where it starts. It starts with you recognizing that everything you need is outside of you that you can't provide it. You don't have sufficient means to provide righteousness and holiness and obedience. You don't even have sufficient means to provide faith. You need God to work on your behalf and he's done that through Christ and so I was pleading on the phone and uh, well, I don't know. We'll see someday. I'm hopeful but I shared, as I shared with this person, again, whom I love dearly, I thought about these kinds of texts. I thought about the way in which all the promises of God are yes and amen, not in Perry, but in Christ. I thought about the high standard God calls us to and the high standard he fulfills for us in Christ. Do you know this Christ? this great prophet. If you'd like to talk more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ or follow Jesus Christ, to live your life in surrender to Jesus Christ, would you, would you stay afterward for a few moments as you walk out of the main worship center? You'll take a left. And on the right-hand side, before you leave this building, there is a room called the Crossroads. And Crossroads is just above the entry. Walk in there. There will be a pastor in there who would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to be someone who recognizes his or her own moral bankruptcy and finds everything they need in God's final prophet, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In summary, how should you know and respond to God's will for your life? Kind of going back. How should you know and respond to God's will for your life? By trusting in and obeying the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. How? How do you know what Jesus has said? As revealed in what? In scripture. That's how. This is why Christians prize the text of scripture. We prize the text of scripture because on the pages of the text, we hear the words of the prophet, Jesus Christ. This is why we spend time studying God's word. This is why we do a Bible reading plan as a church. And you can find those even in the back of your bulletin where we are reading through the New Testament. This is why we memorize scripture together. We hide God's word in our hearts. We might not sin against him. All of these things, not because, if I could say it this way, maybe, 
not because we love the book, ultimately, but we love the Savior revealed in and speaking through this book in such a way that every word of the book is a word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, this morning, we've heard that we are not to adopt pagan practices of knowing and responding to the will of God, even in the name of Christ. Secondly, we found that we are to know and respond to God's will by trusting and obeying God's ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, and in doing so as he has revealed himself and as he speaks in the text of scripture. The longer I am a Christian, which hasn't been terribly long, just over 20 years or so, less than some of you. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize something. I should be more interested in the words God has spoken to me in Scripture than in what he has not spoken to me. We spend so much time, don't we, trying to find God's will for our lives when he's spoken clearly concerning the most important matters. Am I listening? Am I reading? Am I surrendering to Jesus Christ, the great prophet? You won't find every detail of your life described in Scripture, right? You won't do that. It won't, scripture won't tell you in Second Hesitations chapter 2. There's no second hesitations. There's not even a first hesitations. But you won't find anywhere in the text of Scripture, you know, should I take this job or not? But you will find principles to consider in living a life surrendered to Jesus Christ you will find ways of asking questions concerning your motivations. Most important of all, you will, through faith and by the power of the Spirit of God, come to know God's final prophet, Jesus Christ, more intimately. So as one hymn writer penned a few hundred years ago, and we'll close with this. I've quoted this before. I love this hymn. How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith, where? In his excellent word. What more can he say, church, than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us to listen to, trust in, and obey the words of your prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, who wasn't merely a prophet, but who is indeed God the Son incarnate. Energize us by your spirit to live lives surrendered to Christ. Give us the joy of living every moment of our lives as in the presence of Christ, our Savior, our prophet, our master, our king. And help us to leave here a changed people because indeed we have met with the Lord and because of that we are forever changed. In the name of Christ, in the authority of Christ and by the power of Christ, we pray these things together and all God's people said, amen. Here in just a